Thank you so much, Sharon, for reading that text for us this morning. So uh, I have a quiz for you. Uh, last Sunday was the Super Bowl. Who won? The, Can <laughs> the Kansas City Chiefs won. But I have a harder question for you. We'll show you the answer in a moment. Who won the Super Bowl last year? Ah, good. A few of you got it right. We'll put it up on the screen here for you. The Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl. But it's interesting to think about it, that as soon as the Super Bowl is over, the memory about it begins to fade quickly. So if I were to ask you who won the World Series last year, what team would that be? That's right, it's the Houston Cheaters. I mean Astros, sorry, sorry. They won the World Series. So what happens sometimes if, you know, I'm going to get off sports, trust me. But when we think about winning... There's all the ramp up to the win. But once the win has happened, once the championship is over, we start looking to the next season. What coaches are going to get fired? What teams are going to move players around? How is everyone posturing themselves to win next year? This quiz would get harder with each year I would ask you who won the World Series. Except, of course, in 2020 when the Los Angeles Dodgers won the World Series. But besides that, see, friends, what happens is our, our, the way in which we think about winning isn't necessarily about honoring or holding the champion. It's simply about how do we get to the champion, and as soon as we get there, we have moved on. So you probably maybe had some activities last Sunday on Super Bowl Sunday. My activity this Sunday will be to take a nap. We move on quickly from victory. We move on quickly from these moments of great celebration and exaltation. And I share them with you from the standpoint of this, is that those moments are fleeting. And that in some ways, as important as those moments are, they are simply blips that appear for moments in time. And then we need to move into the reality of life as we know it and as we engage it. And this text from Matthew chapter 17 is a great example of that. Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he's transfigured with three of his disciples. And there's this great moment of victory, but it's fleeting. It doesn't last very long. And instead, something else begins to emerge that's vastly more important to us than that moment on the mountain. We're finishing a series of messages today called Value the Difference. And this has been a series of messages where we've been exploring some of the values we hold as Christian people and how we hold those values in peculiar and unique ways. We've talked about the values of life. We've talked about the values of justice, of mercy, of grace, of love. And throughout every week, we've explored each of those values as Christians, not by looking to Christian scripture or the New Testament. We've looked every week to Jewish scripture, what we commonly call the Old Testament, to inform us about how these stories about these values are, are not new. They're a part of what it means to be the people of God over centuries and even millennia. And so today we turn our attention toward this story in Matthew's gospel to conclude this series as we focus on a vision today for Jesus. 
a vision for Jesus who stands central in this story that we heard read just a moment ago. Because in this moment, at this particular flash of time in Matthew 17, Jesus looks like a winner, doesn't he? The text tells us about how he goes up onto a mountain in the north of Galilee and he stands upon this mountaintop and we're not even sure which mountain it is and all of a sudden Jesus is changed. The Greek word for transfigured is metamorphothē. Sound familiar? We get our word metamorphosis from the very same word. It means to be altered in appearance but not in substance. Jesus is changed right before the very eyes. And there's only a few people who see this great event. Jesus doesn't do this at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't do this when he's feeding 5,000 or 4,000, or he has multitudes of people following him around. He takes three people with him, Peter, James, and John, just those three. And this is what I would describe as a vision of awe. It's a vision of awe. Peter, James, and John will be invited to go with Jesus alone one other time, besides this one. And we'll talk about that moment in a little bit. But this is the first time those three are invited to go along with Jesus on top of this mountain to see him transfigured. And as soon as Jesus is transfigured or altered in appearance, two other characters from the Bible appear with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, there's a lot of symbolism behind why Moses and Elijah appear. Moses, of course, in many ways representing what we know of Jewish law. Elijah representing the Jewish prophets. So the totality of the Jewish witness is standing there with Jesus represented in those two people. And so Peter, one of the three Jesus has taken along with him, he has a fine idea. And his idea is that we're going to build three booths here to enshrine the moment. We want to have an opportunity to pause and to hold on to this moment of transfiguration. Now, this moment for Peter is much preferred because the moment that he just had with Jesus before they went up to the mountain was not Peter's, how shall we say, shining moment. Let's read that story from Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. We'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, From that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed, and to be raised up on the third day. And Peter, and yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on men's. This transfiguration story happens right after that. So Peter's just had a moment where Jesus called him Satan to his face. The word Satan means accuser, the Satan. So he's basically saying that Peter is epitomizing all that would come against the very mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. So Peter can hold on to two different moments. He can hold on to the moment when Jesus called him Satan, or he can hold on to the moment on the mountain when Jesus is exalted with Moses and Elijah. Which one would you rather build a booth for or a little hut for to remember? Well, of course, he wants to remember the one of 
the transfigured Jesus, who wouldn't? Peter is so certain that this is the moment he's been waiting for. He wants to enshrine it and hold on to it. If he could, he would charge admission so that people could come up the mountain to have a Kodak moment on Magic Mountain with Elijah, with Moses, and with Jesus. And Peter would sell the tickets. This is what he wants. Finally, after following Jesus around and listening to Jesus hem and haw everywhere and all this bloody blah about death and resurrection, finally, Peter finds out that the guy he's following is the Messiah. He's right. He picked a winner. How good that must have felt in that moment to have picked a winner. The trouble is, is that Peter equates Jesus with other winners like Moses and Elijah. What honestly could be better? This addiction to winning, to competition, to being right as opposed to being wrong. All of these ways in which our culture celebrates celebrity, bravado, chest-thumping. Are these values we hold? Are these the way that God has called us to be and live in the world? Perhaps we need to ask deeper questions about what's going on here, about our addiction to hubris and pride, about being right and being so convinced that we have it all figured out. As soon as Peter makes this proposal, he puts his business plan on the table. Let's build three booths. Then the cloud comes. Now, the cloud is an interesting symbol because in, within kind of Jewish culture, uh, go, the cloud is God's preferred mode of transportation. So when a cloud comes, something's going to go down. And something does go down. The, the cloud is important because uh, it, it's in a cloud that Moses met God on Sinai. It's in a cloud that Elijah met God on the very same mountain. It's in a cloud that Peter now hears this voice, and the voice says, what? This is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. It's the exact same formula used at Jesus' baptism. When he comes out of the water, the language says, this is my son. It's the exact same wording, except now there's an added piece, listen to him. That piece, listen to him, comes in the Greek grammar of the New Testament in what's called the imperative mood. It's not an invitation for Peter to listen. It's a command for him to listen. And as soon as the cloud comes and the voice speaks, something shifts in the story. And what shifts is his posture. Instead of putting forth his business plan, something changes. You see, Peter has not been listening to Jesus at all. He's not even actually following Jesus well, until this moment, because Peter's looking for a winner. And once he feels like he's found a winner, he wants to hold on to the moment. And that's just not going to be what happens. 
So in this vision of awe, here are a couple of questions for us to wonder about this week. How does our vision for success shape how we treat others and even how we pray for them? Do we pray for people to be winners, successful? Are we praying for something else? And then where do we find the time, the space, time, and willingness to listen to him? Well, the part I love about this story is, is not the transfiguration moment. It's the moment that Peter um, is corrected, listen to him, and then immediately what happens after. Peter and others hear the voice, Peter, James, and John, and they assume a very different position. It says in the text, they fall down terrified. They fall down terrified. And this is where a vision of awe changes to a touch of grace. This is my favorite part of the story. This touch of grace that happens is such an important thing for us to hear. You see, when he falls down on his face terrified, then he's ready to receive the touch of grace. But when he's putting business plans out and thinking about how he's going to charge admission to Magic Mountain, he simply is not ready to receive the touch of grace. He thinks that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are a bunch of equals, and this is a great moment, and it's a good thing he's here. That's what it says in Mark's version of this story. Peter literally says, Lord, it's good that we're here. My, oh my. He falls on his face terrified, and then he may be ready to hear what Jesus has to say to him. Peter's first response is contrasted. Now it's a cloud, of vo- a cloud and a voice of correction. To see Jesus again this way will require something to happen. That this moment that Peter wants to hold on to is not held appropriately at this time. Because something else has to happen. In order for this vision of Jesus to be seen again, it will require his very death. That the death of Jesus on the cross is how you get to this vision again. And this is the part that Peter cannot hold. Resurrection requires something. Death I've quite never understood the fixation that we have so often theologically to focus on the very death of Jesus and not talk about his resurrection. It's never really made sense to me because without resurrection, Jesus' death has no meaning. Without his resurrection, he's just some guy that got killed by Romans. Even the Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, we've believed in vain. We must remember that this is a drama of life death and resurrection that the fixation on the death of jesus alone as important as it is doesn't give us the whole story of god's salvation and how god redeems us now peter is bowed to the ground seeing jesus for who he is the son of god And he's beginning to understand that according to Jesus, winning means losing. Note how Jesus responds to him. Isn't it interesting? It says in the text that as soon as the voice speaks, listen to him, Jesus, it says, came to him. That it's Jesus the one who makes the motion, not Peter. 
Peter doesn't come to him. Jesus comes to him. The same way Jesus came to him on the water when he was blood, 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 blood going down after trying to walk on water. Jesus is always the one coming. He's always the one moving. Jesus often will talk about the greatness of people's faith and that, that greatness when Jesus speaks of it, whether it's the Syrophoenician woman or someone else in the Bible, it always has to do with the fact of how desperate they were to come to him. Jesus comes to Peter. And when he comes to Peter, this beautiful part of the story is that he touched them, it says. He touched them. Human. Tender. Caring. Present. Real. And he tells them, get up and do not be afraid. Isn't it better for Jesus to give Peter his appropriate position than for Peter to take it himself? Isn't it better for Jesus to tell us who we are than for us to tell Jesus who we think we are? But we can only do that when we're in that posture, when we're in that posture of being bowed down. It's the only way that happens. That's the posture of grace. The posture of grace is not showing up in a sanctuary, sitting in a pew, going through the motion, singing the songs, and walking out the door. The posture of grace is a people who are contrite and repentant and bowed down before their glorious Savior, recognizing that it's only in that position can they receive the touch of grace on their life. That's how it happens, friends. Time and time and time again in Scripture, we hear this Scripture. We hear this message. It's one of repentance. It's the one of saying to God, God, I've tried to take from you. And at this moment in time, I'm going to receive from you. It's very different. You may have read the news over the last uh, week or so plus of a, a revival that's going on at Asbury University. Some students a week ago last Wednesday came to chapel. They showed up in chapel and there was a typical chapel and there was a message and everything as they were required to do at Asbury, and when the chapel was over, a group of students decided to stay behind. And as they stayed behind and they came forward and they prayed, bowed down. Bowed down. Repenting. Confessing. Even weeping and crying. Then, Jesus came to them and touched them. And told them, get up, do not be afraid. There have been people in that chapel every hour of every day since in Wilmore, Kentucky, praying and asking God to somehow touch and move in their lives. I follow it a little bit on social media. I get rather fed up with the cynics who say, well, you know, whatever, you know, that's not that meaning. You know what? When God is moving, God is moving. Just let it be what it is. This is the posture of grace. The posture of grace is one in which we are ready to receive something from God. We're ready to stop taking it. We've understood that we're not trying to find a God who's a winner. We're trying to find a God that will love us and know us exactly as we are. Warts, brokenness, everything. Just as we are. Christians often claim that their knowledge of salvation is their winning ticket. 
that something else is happening here in this story. Even at Asbury University, it is prayerful humility. The life manifest in loving and just behaviors. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. He says this, Now, as to the love of the brothers and sisters, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you practice it toward all the brothers and sisters who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel even more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Work with your hands just as we instructed you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The apostle knows the posture of grace. Bowed down in prayer. Humble. This is when Jesus comes to us. And he touches us and says, don't be afraid. I think that many of us are hungry to hear that message from Jesus. We're hungry to hear that word. But it comes to us in a posture. Posture of heart, mind, and even body. So some questions for us to ponder this week. How do you make yourself ready for God's touch of grace? How, how do people around you experience your faith in Christ? Do they experience it as braggy winning? Or do they experience it as a quiet and gentle life? And what can we do to better balance that quiet life with the call to do justice and to share the message of Jesus everywhere we go? There's a balance to be found there. Some questions just to wonder about this week. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, come down from the mountain and Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this. I want you to keep it a secret until after I've been raised from the dead. And part of the reasoning behind why Jesus swears them to secrecy is that the transfiguration makes no sense without the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's meaningless. If Jesus isn't resurrected, he has no victory over death. If he has no victory over death, then his cross has no value to us. That in order to see this Jesus again, you have to go to the cross and to the resurrection as well. Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up to this mountain of transfiguration. That's the first time he takes those three with him. The next time those three will go with him, when he invites them to accompany him alone, is on a Thursday evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus invited Peter, James, and John to come with him as he prayed in the garden. His prayer of agony, as it's called, before the soldiers would come and arrest him and then take him for his trial and then eventually his crucifixion. Peter, James, and John responded to that great moment of agony with Jesus by taking a nap. They want to hold on to the winning moment all day long. But when they get to the moment when the real victory is won, they take a nap. This is what our lives need to learn and embrace as a call to prayer. 
This text, the the transfiguration of Jesus, is the text we normally read in churches before the season of Lent begins. Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. And Lent is a season of repentance, reflection, spiritual discipline, and preparation for Easter. And we start this Wednesday. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, the day before. Tuesday is Shrove Tuesday or Fat Tuesday. Or if you're perhaps to be in French, Mardi Gras. In Brazil, Carnival. Lent begins on Wednesday. We read this text the Sunday before Lent begins. Because this is your last picture of this Jesus until he's ready to meet you on Easter. This is your last moment to look at him. Exalted. Lifted up. You'll meet him again on April 9th. But we start a journey this week, a journey of prayer, of reflection, repentance, spiritual discipline. I want to share with you in our church how we we want to do that. It has to do with this book you probably saw in the foyer when you came in. There are some practices we're inviting everyone in our church to keep this year, that this year's Lent, we want to be a 40-day season of prayer in the life of our church, and that every bit of our focus and intentionality is on being a praying people during these 40 days. So during these 40 days, we're going to invite everyone in our church to do three things. The first thing we're going to invite you to do is to use this daily prayer guide through Lent. On every page here, you'll see a prayer that's been prepared for that day. And then a blank page opposite it where you can take any of your notes, drawings, doodlings, musings, reflections that God might speak to you. So a prayer every day and a reflection every day. Feel free to do this maybe in the morning, evening, lunchtime, anytime. Take time to do this. Now you'll notice that when you go through this book, there's, there's no entry for Sundays in this book because Lent is 40 days. It counts every day between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, but not not Sundays, because Sundays are always a little Easter. So this is one thing we'll invite you to do. There's 40 entries here. These have all been curated and prepared. Pastor Camille was the one who spent all the time putting together these prayers for each and every day. And so we hope this is a helpful guide to you. The second thing we're asking everyone in our church to do and you'll find this described in the opening of the the book here, it goes into detail, is we'd like you to set a reminder on your phone, a reminder on your watch, an alarm clock in your house for 2.23 p.m. every day. Why 2.23? Because it's 2.23. So at 2.23 every afternoon, you pause just for a moment. Now, some of you might have more than a moment to pray. But some of you might be sitting in the middle of a meeting at 2.23 and the alarm goes off. Pray for five seconds. Pray for our church. Pray for your own life. Pray for the community that you're a part of. Pray for our city, our nation, and our world at 2.23 every afternoon. And the last thing we're going to invite you to do is to fast 
I'm waiting for the gasp. One of the practices the founder of our movement kept, his name was John Wesley, is that John Wesley kept a practice of fasting every single week. Now, the fast that John Wesley kept started at sunset on Thursday, and it ended Friday at 3 p.m. Thursday at sunset till Friday at 3 p.m. Now, the reason he chose that particular time is because it commemorates the footprint of time from when Jesus left the Last Supper on a Thursday night. We call it Monday Thursday, until he died on the cross at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. Jesus hung on a cross from 9 a.m. Friday morning till 3 p.m. Friday afternoon. And so that period of fasting matches that time of Jesus's agony. Now, fasting is an, an, a discipline you may not know well. Typically, we say, oh, I have to fast. That means I don't eat food. That can be one way you fast, by not eating. Another way you could fast by, is by not eating a certain kind of food. You could fast by abstaining from some other practice or behavior or habit you keep during that time. You can find all sorts of ways to let go of something during that period of a fast. So we wanted to give you these resources today so you could begin thinking about it before we get to Wednesday. Now, you may also, during that fast, want to add something. You may want to do something additional. You may want to add an act of service into your life during that period of time. You may want to add something else. I don't know what it could be. But whatever it is you might want to do, whether you want to take something away or add something, let that period of time from Thursday at sunset till Friday at 3 p.m. be a, a moment in every week that you've dedicated yourself to God in some way. Each of these practices, whether it's using the prayer book for reflection, praying at 2.23 in the afternoon, or practicing a form of the fast, all of it will help you. All of it will help you assume that posture of grace. Listen to what Mr. Wesley even says about it. This is from his sermon called When You Fast. He writes this, fasting is chiefly an aid to prayer. Do you get that first part? Chiefly an aid to prayer. So much so that it has frequently been found a means in the hand of God of confirming and increasing not one virtue, but also seriousness of spirit, sincerity, sensitivity, and tenderness of conscience, deadness to the world, and consequently a love of God and of every holy and heavenly feeling. We invite you to these practices during this season. This morning we begin thinking and reflecting about how God has called us to do that. So you come for communion today and invite you to come in that posture of Peter. Not the tabernacle building posture, the, the tent building posture, but in the other posture. The cloud, the voice. We in the Christian community writ large have a lot to repent for. And even in our own lives, there's parts of us where we need to simply say to God, God, I need to, I need to change my life. I, I need... I need to do something different than how I'm living right now. And that's whether you're 
10 years old, whether you're 50 years old, or whether you're 90 years old, it doesn't matter. God is speaking to us as a church, as a people, and is inviting us into a deeper way of living with him. But it means the posture of grace so that he might touch us. So this morning, please come. Please pray. You can kneel, as always, here at the Chancellor. You, you can even fall on the floor. That's all good. I've seen it all. But let God move you today, even just a little bit, toward that posture of grace. Because when we do, we will meet the transfigured Jesus in resurrection and new life. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, we pray that this day, that as we gather in this sanctuary, in this place that you have set aside for us to worship and exalt your name, that you would empty us of any hubris, pride, arrogance, thoughts that we know it all, feel it all, and get it all. And instead, in this moment, you would fill us with a deep sense of the burdens that we carry, an awareness of how we often misunderstand your glory, that this is not about it being a champion. This is about the one who serves and gives his life for us. Jesus, the very heart of our faith. Thank you.